This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.com. This time we'll have our scripture reading. We're reading from the Old Testament first and then from the New. Our text, our sermon text today comes from Hebrews chapter 3. And so you may want to turn there, but I'll first read from Numbers chapter 14, verses 20 through 25. Hear God's word for God's people. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since... The Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow, and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. And then reading in the book of Hebrews, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 3, and we'll read to 4, uh, verse 13. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, 
and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Good morning. It's a joy to be with you, and if you have your copy of God's Word, have it open there to Hebrews 3. We'll be looking at 7 through 4.13, just as what was read. And this whole section deals with the topic of rest. So just before we dive in, let's take a moment and pray, shall we? Father in heaven, we come before you, Lord. We come in your house. Uh, We sit under your Word. And uh, Lord, we are praising you because you are worthy. The elements for communion sit before us and they remind us of your great love in sending your own Son. That His body was given. He took on human flesh. He dwelt amongst us. He did all of that without sin so that He could die, that His blood would be spilt so that we could be forgiven. What love there is from you to us. And God, as we sit here, we recognize that we probably don't appreciate all that you have done as much as we should. The way you care for us in our daily needs, the way you've provided Christ, the way ultimately that we have hope of life ever after. Lord, the things of this world can get get us distracted. It can get us discouraged. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use this hour through your Spirit to speak to us. Give us ears to hear, hearts to receive. I pray, Lord, that you would protect my words, that I would be faithful to your word, that I would not say more nor less than you give me to say, but God, that I would be faithful. I pray that we as a people who sit under your word and in your house, that we would be changed, that we would be made more and more like your son, that we would be more and more faithful, that you would receive all the glory to your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Rest. Rest. Rest is something that each person in this room desires. In fact, we were blessed with an extra hour of rest. Amen? I I wonder sometimes, am I more tired after that or not? But that time switch, I'm still wrestling with whether or not we should do that. Because when I gain it, I love it. And when I lose that hour, I hate it. But rest is something we all desire. 
Rest is something each of us needs. The truth of the matter is we're caught in this grind of work, family responsibilities, and the ongoing stress of just being human. We need rest. Interesting enough, when you look in the early parts of the Bible, you see all the way back to the creation order that when God created man, one of the first things he showed man was the importance of rest. See, on six days it says God created, but on the seventh day God did what? God rested. God did not rest because he was tired. God was providing actually a gift for man. See, the rest was created for man. It was this pattern of work six and rest one which was given to bless man. It it was to point to something even greater than the temporary rest, but the eternal rest that's found in a relationship with God. That's exactly what Adam and Eve had in the garden prior to the fall. They had perfect rest in God. And yet when we look at our lives, that's not really one of our strengths, resting. Resting isn't something we do well. According to a study that was done, only one in seven adults, that's 14%, set aside one entire day for the purpose of rest. 14% of, 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 of humanity, only one in seven, this study says, actually set aside a day of rest. And then when it takes that 14% and you begin to explore it a little deeper, How many of those actually do what they set out to do, to give a day of rest? Just under 20% is what the study came back with. What's the point? Rest isn't something we do well. Rest isn't something we really know or, or experience well. And yet it's something we desire, something we crave. Even the media gets it. The the commercials, there's a Coca-Cola commercial that, that long has had this one statement, the pause that refreshes. And it goes all the way back to 1924 when they first came up with that logo. The pause that refreshes. And they did it again in 1932, and they did it again in 1935, they did it again in 1937, they did it again in 1938. Why am I telling you this? Because they seem to understand that man has a desire for rest, and they wanted to be the ones to say, we provide that. Our Coca-Cola product provides it. Interesting enough, they did it again in 1947, then they did it again in the 1990s. They understand that that's an ongoing problem is rest, and they want to be the ones to say, we're it. We're the place you can find your rest. Unfortunately, the effort to refresh oneself with a Coke (laughs) doesn't really meet the need of rest, does it? Coke doesn't really satisfy, especially for us Pepsi people. Our souls long, they stir for rest. They stir for a Sabbath. Something we desire. Rest. Rest is something we need. And that's exactly what God had promised to the people. Rest. Yet in our text, it's interesting, it's not a joyous occasion and discussion about rest. It's actually a warning about rest. Look at verse 7 of chapter 3. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to come back to that phrase. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of resting in the wilderness. There's a warning of rest, but I want to show you first and foremost 
who is the author of this warning? The author of this warning is God Himself. It says, the Holy Spirit says. Now that part is put in there by the writer of Hebrews as he is making clear to a bunch of people who come from Jewish descent who probably have said that line about the warning of rest because they knew it from their own heritage. They repeated it in Psalm 95. They experienced it in the lineage of the promises and the hopes of what they understood. To these people, he reminds them, this warning of rest comes from God. The Holy Spirit says so. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This phrase comes from Psalm 95. If you're a note-taker, it's verses 7 and 11. It's in that psalm that actually the warning is given. That psalm was supposedly said each week in the synagogue on the Sabbath. That psalm was a, was a, was a popular psalm. It was, it was a psalm which redirected the worship, but also marked the warning to make sure that God was getting the proper worship, that our rest was not misplaced. But again, the author of this warning is the Holy Spirit. And the writer of Hebrews is doing something by making that statement, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. He's directing our hearts to something very important. He's saying, this shows that the Word of God is inspired, specifically here, Psalm 95. It's inspired, God-breathed. That God's Word is from God. It can't be disregarded. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying as he makes that statement, the Holy Spirit says. Well, what's the warning? The warning is simply, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Hearing the voice, hearing the Word of God, the inspired Word of God, don't harden your hearts. See, hardening your heart is dangerous. Let me say it another way. Hardening your heart is disastrous. Careful not to harden your heart. In that example from Psalm 95, he's talking about rebellion in the wilderness. That's a reference to those who God had freed on the other side of the, of the uh, Red Sea. It's a picture of back when they were in Egypt as slaves and how God showed his strength through ten plagues. And he defeated the God of the Egyptians, the Pharaoh. And God showed that he was truly the living and true God. But see, once the people came out of Egypt, once they crossed the Red Sea, there was rebellion. There was insurrection. They said all kinds of things against God. God's not loving enough. God doesn't care about us. Would God leave us out here just to die in the wilderness? They didn't trust God to actually bring them into the promised land. Maybe they trusted God enough to get them out of Egypt, but they didn't trust God enough to get them in the promised land and to wipe out all of their enemies. See, when Psalm 95 is speaking, it's actually speaking about a real event in the Bible, Numbers chapter 14, verses 22 and 23. And notice the cost. It says, none of the men who have seen my glory, none of them shall enter my rest. None of them. 
Because they didn't obey. They didn't obey my voice. They hardened their hearts to my voice. I want to pause here for a moment, just ask the question, who is this written to? Who's this warning given to? Our nature might be, well, it's given to the heathen, it's given to the pagans, it's given to the unbeliever. No. This warning was given to the covenant people of God. This warning was given to those who had seen God's power in Egypt, who had crossed the Red Sea, who had experienced the shoes that never wore out, who experienced manna given to them every morning. It's to them. To those who were part of the outward community. But obviously weren't part of the true covenant community. Paul speaks of this in Romans 9 when he says, not all of Israel is Israel. See, just because you simply have biological blood in you doesn't make you a true worshiper of God. No more can your grandparents give you their faith than the people of Israel give their faith to their ancestry. We all must stand before God. We all must give account The call is for all of us to believe. Someone may ask, well, does this mean that the people who left after after Egypt and crossed the Red Sea, did they lose their salvation somehow? Is that what occurred? Did they, they somehow lost their salvation? No. They never had it. That's the point. See, the key word here is apostasy. They turned away from. It was with unbelieving hearts The issue was their unbelief. It was a heart issue. That's why they were called not to harden their hearts. Chapter 4, verse 2 actually talks about this. It says, the message that they heard was of no value to them. Here's why. Because it was not united with faith. It was a covenant people. They assembled. They, They were there at the mountain. They heard the thundering and lightning. Moses gave them the Ten Commandments. They knew what they were expected to do. But there was no faith. God gave them his word, but there was no faith. They were a people set apart unto himself, but there was no faith. Hebrews 4.2, they were not united with faith. See, if they were true believers, they would have carried on. They would have persevered. True faith always perseveres. Yet these individuals were told that they abandoned, they apostatized. Look back at chapter 3, verse 10. It says that they astrayed and went astray in their heart. Their heart. How many of us know people that grew up in church? People that had been handed a great historical faith. Their grandparents, their parents. They grew up in Sunday school and in Boys and Girls Club and they attended youth group and they were brought to services every day and maybe their family even did family worship. But they themselves had a hard heart and they wandered from it. They strayed from it. They apostatized. See, that's who this message is for. It's a message of warning and understand this message of warning is for all of us. We're forced to ask the question, am I believing? Notice the constant state of that. It's not, have I believed? It's, am I believing? Am I trusting God's word? Let me ask it a little different way. 
Am I not just trusting in the promises of heaven? For after all, who doesn't want to see streets of gold and the pearly gates? But is it this? Am I believing in his commandments? That what God loves, I love. And what God hates, I hate. That's the picture of one who truly has faith. They love God and they love his word. And they believe him. They believe all of his promises. Not just the ones they pick and choose. See, the people in Moses' day, maybe they trusted him to get him out of Egypt, but they surely didn't trust him to get him into the promised land. Not victoriously. And so they complained. They revolted. Church, understand this warning is a warning for all of us. We need a faith that perseveres. The question is, do we have it? Am I believing Not did I believe, but am I believing? Not only does this text show the warning about rest, it actually shows the worth of God's rest. And notice the comparison that's given in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. It says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What he's basically saying is there's a better rest than Canaan. A rest that is better than land. See, it's more than land. It's about the very presence of God, being at rest with God, being at peace with God. And this is the picture here. Joshua was leading the people into Canaan, but he did not provide the rest that they ultimately craved. Only God could give that. The rest here was simply a picture, a type, a shadow pointing to the deeper rest, the eternal rest, the spiritual rest that God provides. And that rest which God provides is an eternal rest. For God rested from his work, we're told, on the sixth day, or the seventh day, after six days of creating. And what was man to do? Man was to rest from his work as God did from his. Look at verse 10 of chapter 4. Man was to rest from his work as God did from his. This is a picture of the Sabbath rest. Six days of work and then rest. Adam and Eve would have experienced this this rest, this intimacy, this privilege of being in God's presence, meeting God in the cool of the day, the idea of, of meeting God in his presence. The rest Adam and Eve were intended to enjoy in the garden. But because of the fall, they lost. And now they had to toil and work and sweat and pain and sorrow entered the world. But notice what the writer of Hebrews is saying. There is still a rest, a spiritual rest, a heavenly rest, a true rest that we desire is found in God. This resting is a rest that we're told to, according to verse 11 of chapter 4, to strive for. And yet he also tells us in verse 10 of chapter 4 that it's a rest from all of our works. So which is it, striving or resting? The answer, yes. It's both. See, resting is about striving. It's about belief. It's about truly resting in the finished work of God. In our home, Things get a little messy. There's a bunch of us that live there. We have a new puppy. It gets kind of crazy. My wife, right, she can only rest so much. 
She gets anxious because she sees things that, that aren't put away. And, and we always say, well, I was going to do that. She doesn't rest because she doesn't trust. <laughs> and maybe for good reason, because she lives with us. <laughs> but the point is, are we trusting God? Are we resting? Striving to trust, to rest. Our shorter catechism helps us here. Question 86 actually points us to what it is to have faith in Jesus Christ. Notice the answer. It actually mirrors this. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. Number one, understand grace is not earned. It's given freely. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and we rest. Notice the striving to receive. Placing your faith in, resting upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered in the gospel. That's why we call people to believe. We help people strive to, to rest in Christ. It's both striving and resting. It's all about receiving and resting in Christ, that beautiful rest that only He can provide. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2 points this out, for it says, For good news came to us just as it did to them. But the message they heard was no, no benefit to them because it was not united by faith with those who listened. The important thing is the gospel was shared both in the Old and New Testament. The trusting in God which was called for. The hope of one who would come and free them. But they didn't trust. Are we? Are we truly resting in Christ? Are we striving to rest in Christ? See, that's why this, this mention of this episode in Numbers that is recounted in Psalm 95 is so important to the writer of Hebrews. He's calling us as a warning. He's calling us to consider the worth of God's rest. But the issue is our unbelieving hearts. And do we have those? Unbelieving hearts? Or are we striving to receive? Are we seeking to believe, to rest in the good news of the gospel? Finally, we see something interesting. There's not only a warning, there's not only the worth of God's rest, but there's the way to enter it. See, along with the striving to enter that was found in chapter 4, verse 11, and the warning not to harden our hearts, which is actually found in repeated places like chapter 3, verse 8, and chapter 3, verse 15, and chapter 4, verse 7, there's direction still given by the writer of Hebrews of what it means to enter the rest. Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. For we who have believed enter that rest. Belief, faith, trust. Trusting God's promises, trusting God's word, believing and resting in Christ alone, the promised one to whom he's given. He actually plays on that a little bit earlier in chapter 3, verse 12, when he says, Take care, my brothers, lest there be any of you, and with, with any of you, an unbelieving. He actually defines it as an evil, unbelieving heart. Be careful. Take, take note. Take, take care here. Lest there be found in any of you who do not believe. Believing is essential to entering the rest. It's not just simply believing. He actually says fearing. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, what's he say? Let us fear. 
fearing? What does fearing have to do with believing? Everything. The reason we trust is because we truly take God's word seriously. It's good to fear. Yet in our culture, we've removed fear. The idea is we shouldn't fear anything. Yet Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 reminds us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fearing the word of God is essential to actually believing. That God actually means what he says. Hence the warning has teeth. So for to believe or to fear, and yet all the while we're not to do this alone. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may harden your hearts by deceitfulness of sin. Encourage, exhort one another. Encourage one another to have faith. Note the importance here of the role of the community of faith. Note here that one does not walk by faith alone, but actually walks together in family, in community. Our faith is not in isolation. We learned that through COVID. We need that communion of saints. Our own confession of faith picks us up in chapter 26, verse 2. If you want to know what we believe and you're a visitor here today, we believe in the Westminster Confession articulates well what Scripture says. And hear what it says about communion of saints. The saint, by profession, are bound to maintain a holy fellowship. That's what we're doing right now. And communion in the worship of God and in the performance of such other spiritual services to tend to the mutual affection. I want you to hear that. The mutual affection the mutual encouragement. That's what we're doing. We're, we're encouraging one another. Do you know as you show up to worship, you're not just showing up to worship for yourself. You're showing up to encourage others in your faith, in their faith, to believe, to trust. Some of us, we, we wake up, and especially when the hour goes forward and we lose that hour, we think, well, you know what? I'll go next week. But there's brothers and sisters that need you here. They need to be encouraged by you. That's exactly what our own confession of faith is saying. Responsibility to, to meet together. In fact, the writer of Hebrews picks this up in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, and he says, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. And then here's the answer. Not neglecting to meet together. Don't forsake the assembling together. And he goes on to say, that's the habit of some. But your job is to encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Encourage, strengthen, support. Build up the faith in one another. Help one another to strive. Help one another to enter the rest. What's interesting about all of this is the role and the power of the Word of God that it plays in all of this. The first thing is that the Word of God is where our faith is held accountable to. See, what we believe isn't just whatever I choose to believe. Well, to, God, to me, God is, we hear that a lot today, but not for the Christian. For the Christian, what we believe is in the Word of God. And so the Word of God actually is what we're held accountable to. And that's exactly what he's been saying about the rest, is that when you hear God, don't harden your hearts. What God has said, respond to in faith. Yet how many of us try to be our own standard when the word of God is to be that standard? If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
He repeats it in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. He repeats it again in chapter 3, verse 15. The Word of God is the standard. But you know what else the Word of God does? It penetrates each and every one of us. The Word of God exposes our hearts. Look what the writer writes in chapter 4 as he, as he begins to talk about the role of the Word. He begins at verse 11. He says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall the same sort of disobedience. Then he goes into verse 12, For the Word of God is the living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the divisions of the soul and the spirit, of the joints and the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The Word of God penetrates and it exposes who we really are. Not only is it the standard, it actually is used to expose us. It's living, it's active, it pierces the divisions of the soul and the spirit, pierces the divisions of the joints and the marrow, pierces the divisions of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Again, the Westminster Confession helps us here. It builds for us the important role that the Word of God plays in our life. In chapter 1, section 4, it says, The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obey, depend not upon the testimony of any man. You don't believe them because I say so, or even the church, or even because First Presbyterian Church says so. But you believe it because holy upon God, who is truth itself, the author of the Scriptures, the very Word of God, that's why you believe it. And therefore it is to be received because it is the Word of God. The confession helps us to understand that the Word of God is powerful and it plays a, a very particular role in us entering rest. So I ask you the question, if the Word of God is that special revelation from God and it is declaring to us the gospel, the good news, declaring to us all the promises, declaring for us all the things God loves and all the, God thing, the things God hates. The question is, are you believing it? Are you trusting it? That's a question for each and every one of us. Church, as we wrestle through this, there's one other thing I don't want you to miss, and that is the key word today. Throughout this entire text, the word today keeps popping up. In chapter 3, verse 7, in chapter 3, verse 13, in chapter 3, verse 15, two times in one verse in chapter 4, verse 7. The warning of this text starts with the word today. We're exhorted to encourage one another every day as long as it's called today. See, while the promises of entering still stand today, you need to believe. Are you believing today? Today is the day of salvation. But are you believing today? I'm not asking you what you did when you were little and you took a confirmation class or you walked an aisle or you raised a hand. But are you believing today? Sure, you may know that you're part of the covenant community. You're here, you're, you're showing up, you're in the worship, you're in the Bible studies. But I would remind you that so were those in the wilderness. The question we all need to answer is, Am I believing? See, if you're hearing God's word, the call is not to harden your heart. My professor, Michael Kruger, I was blessed to sit under him. I took Hebrew from him. 
I sat under many of his New Testament classes. He says in this text, there are three things that we need to observe. Three things. The first is this. This warning proves that having great spiritual privilege does not guarantee true saving faith. Just because you come from a good pedigree, just because grandma and, and mom and everybody else shares a strong faith, doesn't mean that you naturally have that faith. The question is, are you believing? Second, he says, the warning applies to everyone, not to some people. He says, the temptation is to think to ourselves, I don't need to listen to this warning because I believe in God. But the Israelites could have said the same thing, couldn't they have? Thirdly, this warning teaches us that a good start does not guarantee a good finish. A good start does not guarantee a good finish. Someone might say, hey, in my Christian life, I, I started. I started with real optimism and real excitement. But the question is, what about now? Are you believing See, as chapter 4, verse 14 says, for we have come to share in Christ if. We have come to share in Jesus Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Do you hear the word if? If. We have come to share in Christ. That's the rest. That's the rest we desire if we hold our original confidence. Continue. Pressing on. So I ask you, are you holding your original confidence in God's Word? Are you remaining firm? Finally, the, the same word can be preached in a room like this. Two people sitting side by side, or maybe they're reading the Word of God together. One a believer and one an unbeliever. You need to understand that there's two different endings for those individuals. To the one, the Word is a fragrance from death to life. To the other, it's a fragrance from death to death. And this is a question we almost answer. Which am I? Let's pray. Father, as we close our Bibles, as we thank you that in the book of Hebrews, not only does it teach theology, but there's these pauses where there's these pastoral warnings, these these engagements with the people. And Lord, as we are engaging with Hebrews, may our hearts be stirred about our own faith, our own striving, our own resting. May we see the importance of the Word of God, that it was given as the very truth of God, the standard, and yet that same Word of God penetrates into our hearts and can really distinguish between a believer and an unbeliever. We pray, God, that as we see the worth of that rest, that we would heed the warning of that rest. We pray, God, that we would truly follow the way of entering the rest you've provided. We pray this now in Jesus' name. In God's people said, Amen. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.com.